There are more wealthy people today than ever before in the history of the world. The risks they are exposed to through the assets they acquire and their unique lifestyles are significant. The bigger the asset, the bigger the potential loss. The bigger the potential loss, the more complicated the mechanisms for protecting those assets becomes. This show seeks to uncover the risks that successful people face so we can provide some guidance towards minimizing, mitigating, and transferring them. From coverage, contracts, and carriers, to client experience, technology, and claims. We will cover it all. Whether you're an agent looking to hone your skills or someone with significant wealth to protect, I hope this show becomes a valuable resource you can come to rely on to help you protect yourself, your family, and your clients. Welcome to the Private Client Risk and Resilience Podcast. My name is Kurt Turnison, and in addition to being the host of this amazing show, I am also a personal risk advisor at Ericsson Insurance Advisors, where I advise high net worth and ultra high net worth clients on their property and casualty or personal insurance, uh, help them uh, design their program and place the coverage for them. Also, I am the CEO of Risk Review, which is an online platform that provides digital smart forms that agents can use with their clients to help them gather information from clients and prospects online, uh, using technology to make things easier, basically. Uh, so welcome to the show. I'm extremely glad that you tuned in today uh, for this show. And uh, today's show is, is really exciting for me because it deals with a topic and a subject matter that is one of my favorite uh, subject matters and one of my favorite types of insurance to speak about with clients, and that is renovation or builder's risk or construction insurance. And I, I was thinking about this before the call today, and, and the reason, one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite areas of insurance is because it's really a, a place where I, as an advisor, can provide significant advice and provide significant uh uh, knowledge and education to a client because very often there's a lot of things they they don't know and they have a lot of questions because they're just about to undertake this massive project or a big project and there's a lot of money on the line and there's a passion on the line which is their 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 home and they want to protect it and so you know there's a lot of moving parts in renovation and construction insurance uh, and there's a lot of nuance to it and so one of my favorite things to do and uh, super excited for today's conversation because we have an expert uh, from the other side of the fence, uh, from the side of the fence that actually does the work, uh, the project management, the construction, the estimating, uh, the pricing, all of that. Uh, and his name is Zach Cecilmus. And uh, am I pronouncing that right, Zach? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. excellent. Well, Zach works at Reese construct uh contracting uh, out of New York they have offices in LA and, and I'll let him you know get more into detail on this but um Zach and I met at the private risk management association a couple months back uh in 2022 um and uh I sat in on uh, a session where Zach was on the panel with several other uh industry executives and and experts uh in the construction area and it was a fascinating panel really enjoyed it and so afterwards, I uh, got a chance to meet him and we just got to chatting. I told him about the podcast and threw out the idea about doing this. And, uh, you know, thankfully he was amenable to it. And here we are. And, uh, you know, three months later, now 2023 uh, and uh, kicking off the year with an exciting conversation. So uh, just uh, a formal 
Thank you and welcome uh, to the show, Zach. Great to have you here. Well, great to be here, Kurt. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there's so many wonderful conversations happened at the Private Risk Management Association Conference. It was a great panel that, we, that, I, that I was on. And the, the focus of that panel, as you know, was the industry trends of costs that happened during this last year with the inflation, consumer price index, and all the insanity that's been happening in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the construction industry and in the insurance industry as well, and how the costs have changed. Uh, met a lot of great people, and it was a great panel to be on. Yeah, yeah. No, I know it's it's a very interesting time that we're in right now. Uh, and you know, I've been talking about the inflation and the cost of construction with clients for for the last uh, you know for for my entire career. But the last couple years have definitely been different in terms of the conversation. So um, you know, that information was extremely helpful. Uh, and, and you know, one of the things that I learned as we were just getting to know each other too is that you've been involved with the Prior Risk Man Management Association for a lot longer than I thought. Um, you've gone back maybe five, six years, or maybe even to the beginning with your contacts, um, you know, knowing Lisa Lindsay and, mm -hmm. you know, attending other summits. So, you know, how, how did you originally get involved with the PRMA? So let's see, long story short, you know, I, I do a lot of, uh, building consultant work for a few of the more notable carriers, Chubb, Pure, AIG, Cincinnati, et cetera, et cetera. And I'd say, as you said, six, seven years ago, give or take, I somehow crossed paths with, with Lisa Lindsay. And uh, we kind of talked a few times back and forth. And there was a, a couple of PRMA conferences that I attended. And there was one in particular where she asked me to be on a panel as well. And that was in Arizona. I think it was in Tempe, Arizona. And this is going back top of my head about four or five years ago. And I was on that. I was on a panel there, and kind of st stuck with the organization. And it's it's so crazy how the industries really do combine and collide on so many different levels. And, it, and not only was I on the panels, kind of you know uh, sharing some of my expertise on some of the things I know, it was great because I attended a few panels too, just to kind of get more insight, information on things that I don't know about how about the insurance industry, and how many different ways they uh, we, we cross connect. Right. Yeah. And that's really uh, a great point. And something that I've I've always kind of had in my mind is that uh, I, as an insurance advisor, the insurance industry, we connect with so many different uh, specialties, so many different uh, practices. And it's important for us to coordinate with them and mm -hmm. collaborate with them, because very often we will need to do that in the course of business. Uh, and something I, I work on with the, um, the Private Risk Management Association chapter in New York where we will hold hold different events throughout the year, and we will invite other disciplines to our events, uh, people from trust and estates, people from the construction industry, people from the risk mitigation uh, and cleanup uh, services, so, so that we can all bring this ecosystem together, make the connections a little bit tighter. Uh, so, you know, really glad that we're, we're on the same page with that. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember the Tempe, uh, summit that that was I think it was five years ago. Uh, definitely one of my favorite places to go is was Arizona. Uh, it was my first time going there, and before the show uh, started, I was able to go for a run uh, outside. And and uh, there's a mountain there. I forget the name of it, but it was an amazing hike. You know, basic. You know, basically you're going. I don't know. It's it's not quite vertical, but it's close to it. Uh, and going up up the hill with probably 150 other people. Uh, to this gorgeous overlook, uh, it's just such a such a great place to visit. So, highly recommend it. 
so I thought we'd start off by just getting a little bit of your background, because uh, I mean, I I could read it right off the website, but sure. I'm sure you'll tell it a little bit better uh, uh, because it is it is quite impressive. So uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. You know, I, I wish I had some great, amazing story of how I got involved in the construction industry, but really kind of it started out very modest. Uh, I I was fresh out of high school and, you know, I, I, I was waiting for to start college and I got a summer job in, in the construction industry, working in the field as a laborer, you know, naturally just pushing a broom and kind of working my way through and learning some of the trades little by little. And over the course of time, I became, you know, not a bad carpenter, but I started to learn a couple of skills here and there. And it just slowly gravitated to uh, where I was going to school at night and I was working during the day on the construction sites and learning everything I could little by little. Eventually, uh, you know, I, I made my way to the office working as an assistant estimator, assistant project manager. I was going to school at night. At that time, uh, NYU had a program in construction management, which I signed up for. I was taking the program at night and working during the day. And then little by little, I just kind of elevated myself until I became, you know, where I am now. And what's what I say in so many levels, my, my life and my career have really come full circle where now I teach at NYU in their programs, as well as at Fordham. Uh, and you know, in, in I teach estimating, scheduling, core and shell, everything that I've kind of learned over the years, it's really kind of come full circle because now I believe in passing that knowledge back down exactly to those, you know, I look at those, you know, the, the, the students that I have today, and they remind me of myself in so many ways, uh, up and coming, eager, ambitious, ready to go, take the world by storm, and it's refreshing to see. But that's kind of, I'm right now, Reese Contracting, who, I, who I, I'm their director of project development, is a uh, nationwide company. We have office, our main office is here in New York City. We have a shop with, which fabricates all our millwork in Mineola and Long Island. We also have offices in, you know, in, in California, but we do work all over the country. You know, it's kind of like if, if it pays for us to be there, it pays for us to get involved, we, we, we have no issue in uh, addressing any, any, uh, any projects. And then on the flip side of that, as I mentioned earlier, I still do a lot of consulting work for some of the major carriers. Primarily, it seems like it's mostly New York City centric, but not an issue going out to the Hamptons for any carriers that have a building consultant issue or claim that they want to take a look at. Wow. So uh, you cover a lot of bases there. And, and really, uh, I mean, such a great story where you start with uh, sweeping the broom and move your way uh, through the industry. And, you know, you get such a great uh, perspective on everything, just going through every every level of of uh, of an industry. Uh, and it's very similar to the way I started in insurance and just, you know, similarly fell into it, uh, where, you know, you start just picking up the phone, answering questions, researching questions that you don't know the answer to, and then finding out the answers and helping the client however you can. Uh, but thank you for that. That's, that's, uh, and, and you're teaching at the Fordham and NYU, uh, the, the Shack Institute for Real Estate, right? And so these are specialty areas of these universities that really focus on contracting and real estate development, correct? And That's so, true. yeah, I'm oh, sorry, yeah, please. Yeah. So people, people that go to these classes, they're looking, they are, they want to be in real estate. They want to be in construction. They absolutely do. You know, that's kind of, they, they, they are focused on that part of their career. Some of them, so there's there's a few different programs that, that both Fordham and NYU offer. Some of so they're the, let's say the base uh, program they have is a certificate. And what you, they could do is apply for a certificate program, which they have a battery of classes you have to take in estimating, scheduling, core and shell, and, uh, you know, project management, 
blueprint reading, and you take about a year's worth of different various classes and you walk away with a certificate at the end. And on the flip side of that, if you, and depending on who the student is and where they see their career going, there's also a master's program as well that both NYU and Fordham both offer master's in construction management. And I teach, and I was actually, I was part of the, uh, part of the, 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 uh, the board that kind of put the program together over at Fordham, where it's a, it's a master's degree in construction management. It's fully accredited and you have to have uh, so many credits and it's a great program for those. Those are for the more advanced students that really want to entrench themselves in the industry and have something to show for it. And it works out really great. So far, so good. The Fordham one has been around for about four or five years. NYU is around for, you know, as I said before, the early part of my career is that, that they've, they're kind of like the, uh, the, the groundbreaker there. And they actually, it's, it's so funny. People don't know this, but uh, they, they have a, a yearly event and it's it's Larry Silverstein of Silverstein Properties is the uh is one of the hosts and and people don't know this but he's actually the founder of the Shack Institute and it's so great to see that such a big popular name really does actually give back to the industry as well you know uh, and he put the program together he was and he still appears every year at, at some of the events wow that's amazing yeah that's great that uh that he's that, that involved now uh in these courses and in, in these uh, degree programs, do they talk about insurance? Do they talk about risk management? So in, in, all, in all honesty, I'm probably the only person that does because they don't see the correlation and the connection and how important it is with risk management and the construction industry and how it, it's so funny how it's so tied hand in hand. And not everyone really gets to see that see it that way until you open their eyes and say, by the way, have you looked at ABC? Have you looked at risk management? You know, and there's so many different avenues that, that really come up. And in those courses at Ford and NYU, I honestly, they don't. And even in the greater industry, unless someone such as myself on, on our side of the on our side of the avenue really kind of brings it to everyone's attention, it's not the primary focus, you know, and, and it's a shame because it really is. There's so many areas where you can kind of really develop it. You know, there was one which was the risk prevention loss on a home, where there's things like such as water bugs, where you, you know, water loss, water loss mitigation, and making your home a smart home, not in the sense of electronics or anything else like that, but looking at it from the point of your design, where you don't want to have your sprinklers go off, or you don't want to have your pipes freeze in the wintertime. What can you do to make your home better, more efficient? Not in terms of you know the architectural. Uh, viewpoint, but in terms of the loss mitigation viewpoint, what can you do? What can be done to make it loss prevent some loss prevention ideas and you know something along that line? And I've, I've kind of had a few different conversations with a few members of the insurance industry about some ideas going back and forth, but it really hasn't gained steam. You'll see things like you know lead, which is great. Don't get me wrong, which is the you know, leadership in energy and design. Those have got a lot of momentum, but other things along that line of risk and loss risk and loss management. I think there's definitely a, a case can be made for programs such such as that to be take some gain some momentum and be part of the industry and part of the design that architects and designers put into their plans. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. I think there's a lot of opportunity there to to bring that education into the classroom, uh, and you know just from talking with clients and from their conversations with their contractors, uh, the insurance aspect of it, the risk management aspect of it is is very small it's mm -hmm. it's basically at the end you know once they sign the contract and they're or they're close to it uh and there's financing involved you're like oh 
we got to get insurance <laughs> or, yeah. you know, oh, I should tell my insurance company I'm going to destroy the house and rebuild it. Or, you know, uh, one of my favorites was, uh, you know, clients doing a gut renovation on a New York City condo and going to move to the uh, the next floor down in the same building. And he called in just to say, you know, um, I need liability for the new apartment that I'm going to be living in, not to talk about construction insurance. And so we can, so through that conversation, I uncovered that they're doing this major renovation. And I just kind of went off the cuff on the renovation insurance. He's like, wait, 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 I just want liability insurance. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, let's talk about this too. <laughs> so I think there's a great opportunity there to, to bring that education uh, to, to, that, to that table. Uh, that's a great point. So, I mean, one of the things I wanted to start off this conversation was, uh, and just kind of to, I guess, level set and, and give our audience kind of a sense for the types of projects that we're talking about. And uh, I've worked on several large projects, a $28 million home renovation in, in LA, mm -hmm. uh, large uh, New York City renovations, ground up construction, and, um, and they're, all, they all, they're all different. Um, but I wanted to ask you, because you have a different perspective and, and have, have also worked on some pretty incredible projects, what were some of the, um, the favorite projects of your career you know, that you really enjoyed working on? Sure. So th there's so many. And, and you know, what's great with, with what you just said, Kurt, is you know, this is all ultra high net worth space clients. So and they've all got their unique little qualities and uh, that set, set each other so that set them apart. You know, so if I could just kind of say, let, let, let's go geographically, just as a, for example, like the house you would build in the Hamptons would be very different than the house you would build in Laguna Beach, just as a, and what you would do in an apartment in New York City would be very different than what you would do at a townhouse, for example, in New York City. One of my favorites in New York City as a townhouse was one that was, you know, only a couple of years ago, ultra high net worth space, uh, client rather. And what they did was they put a full 75 yard lap pool, Olympic sized lap pool in their, in their cellar. So that was really challenging. And, and, and what's, what's great about it was it was a stainless steel pool, which is also kind of a little bit of a more unique thing that they're doing these days. So that was great because what, what was unique about it was we were doing structural steel up on the top floors, excavating for the pool down below. And it was just insane, but it was such a great project to be a part of. Uh, and this then, was you know, a this was a townhouse. This is a townhouse, a double wide townhouse on the Upper East Side. So, and, and it's great. I mean, usually when I do pools in, in a cellar in, in New York City in a townhouse, they're usually not a full seventy five yard lap pool. They're usually, you know, much more modest. You know, fifty feet, sixty feet, whatever the case may be. But this was a full lap pool. And wow. what was also kind of interesting and challenging was making sure that the width was wide enough and not and wasn't going to interfere with any of the structural components because we were sitting about a foot away from one of the columns and we had to find a way to make it so that we could get the full width of the pool in, in place and not interfere with any of the structural components either. So that was also, you know, really great challenging job to be a part of. Now, uh, the, the stainless steel uh, pool, mm -hmm. I've never heard of a stainless steel pool. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, and you you indicate you indicated it's kind of like a it's a new thing that they're doing stainless steel pools. What what can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. It's so it's it's stainless steel sheet metal uh, with a thicker high quality gauge that they bring in in components, which are I, if I remember correctly, they're either six or eight feet long. Uh, they they're they're pre made in the factory, cast to the shape of the pool, 
and you bring them in step by you know piece at a time. And then once you're on site, you weld it on site and you weld and grind them all on site, which is by itself, it's very challenging. And again, it's, I don't want to say it's new, new, but it's one of the newer kind of, you know, uh, architectural interesting things that they've been coming up with. There's other types of pools that are, you know, more common, such as a gunite finish. And, you know, if you're in the Hampton, something along that line, but this was a different, uh, very different animal. Interesting. And why do they choose stainless over gunite? Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I, I think it was just one of those uh, architectural features that they were looking for to make it a little bit more unique, make okay. this property a little bit more unique than some of the other ones. And as you know, some of the architects that we that we deal with and homeowners that we deal with, it's they they are you know avant garde. They they want to have something that sets their project apart. And this was one of those this was one of those instances where it really did set the project apart. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And, you know, it just makes me think, uh, I was I was thinking maybe this is one of those new technologies that, you know, the construction industry is looking to adopt and and uh, clients are asking for, you know, but that's not the case. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, uh, you yeah. know, there, there's, I'm sure there's other examples of, you know, uh, new technologies that are coming into the construction industry that you and your team have to be aware of. You know, someone asks for a stainless steel pool, you got to be, you got to know how to do that. You know, Absolutely. someone asks for solar panels on the top of their house. You got to know how to do that. Um, what are some other technologies that people are asking for these days that are new uh, that you have to be aware of? So a, a lot of it is, you know, we're at, at Reese. We're a very technology oriented company. So we've, we have this entire, we have an entire BIM modeling program that we are very much involved with, which is building image modeling. So what we do is all the plans are, digitized, we take Matterport scans, which I'm sure you've probably seen Matterport scans when you do like a real estate tour. So, and with, with that process, we also then have, it improves our accuracy and our efficiency on projects. And that's really what it comes down to with the tech stuff. We, we have a full VDC department that uh, really kind of gets into the entire uh, technology aspect of it. But one of the things that I see you know, on the flip side of that, not just so much on the computer end, but the technology in terms of how is construction different today versus what it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago? There's always something new that's kind of being reinvented and, and put put forward. And that, that's what really makes things challenging. I, I tell people all the time that, uh, you know, when I first came into the industry, we had blueprint machines, which were ammonia fed. And to make blueprints, you would have to actually have to feed it through these blueprint machines and it would be ammonia. And you would walk out of the room you know, with your head kind of floating in the air because it was ammonia. So nowadays, I get the question in one of my classes, and this is, you know, I'm not trying to be comedic here, but I've been asked the question, why do they call them blueprints? And it sounds like a silly question because you see, I mean, to me, it's automatically, they used to be blue when you print it off because of the ammonia. Now they're, because it's all CAD and it's all digitized, they're no longer blue. They are, you know, they are, uh, they're, they're not even prints. People don't really even print them out anymore. It's all digital files that are people are looking for on the computer screen. So the industry has really changed a lot in terms of technology in, the, in that line. Product-wise, it's building means and methods haven't really evolved all that much. We're still building very similar now to what we did 20, 30 years ago. There's some things that we finessed and we've kind of tweaked here and there, but you know, in terms of building code, building means and methods, it's pr still pretty much the same things are going on. Little tweaks here and there, you know, uh, just like the stainless steel pool versus gunite, there's what is the new marble that everyone's looking at these days? And, you know, where's that new uh, 
you know, A, what, what stone is kind of more in fashion? What type of wood is more being used in our kitchens and bathrooms? So that stuff is always evolving and changing. That's more of a decorative aspect. In terms of the architectural components, that's pretty much, you know, I don't want to say it hasn't changed at all, but it hasn't changed as much as you would think. Mm. We're, still do, we're still building the same exact way. Well, it sounds very similar to our industry, the insurance industry, which, uh, you know, it's an old industry. And there's a lot of things that are still very similar to the way they were 20 years ago. Uh, and we're constantly trying to improve, constantly, uh, co constantly trying to find new ways to do things more efficiently, to write new risks, to, uh, and and to build uh, build new mousetraps to help people protect things. So it's, um, it, I think they're very similar industries in that respect. Old industries that are are still using a lot of the old stuff, but are trying to adopt the new stuff. Uh, so. You know, in talking about this, the New York townhouse, I mean, you know, your position as a project man, director of project management, you know, I think I would think in that role, you're going to see a lot of things. You're, you're going to see the project at all levels of it. So I was wondering, can you walk us through kind of the stages of a of a of a construction project in New York City, a renovation, for example, like you did, um, you know, so that. You know, for me as an advisor working on the insurance, I, I can handle the insurance aspect of it. But I think having that perspective from you will really help us as advisors, you know, have some more empathy for a client as they're going through the process, better understand what they're going through when they're building a, you know, a $28 million home or a $10 million renovation in New York. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, the process is really well laid out, but it's, I have to tell you, it's changed a lot in the last year. So what we always advise our clients to do is to get involved with your contractor, architect, uh, engineer, everyone sooner rather than later, especially your contractor. There used to be, and this is going back 30 years ago, a very traditional train of thought, which was hire your architect, hire, you know, get your property up in line, have the drawings made out, and then hire your contractor last. That's really changed a lot because it, it the old model doesn't really fit. And so what we do now is, and I say now this is going you know 20 years, whatever the case may be, is get engaged with your contractor earlier. Sign your contractor up for pre-construction, which is all the planning, the budgeting, the scheduling, all those components, do it sooner rather than later. This way, when all your drawings are finalized, your contractor is in place and they can get started right away. Hit the ground running versus figuring out all the details as they go along. What's kind of, and that, that $28 million job, just, you know, hypothetically, that's easily a two year project. So if you spend an extra six months on the front end, just getting your procurement down, getting your permits, getting all these components up and up in place and getting everything signed up, it's really going to stop. It's really going to help the job from any delays and anything that happens once you're on site. So that's what I really propose is, I, to, I, that's what I really kind of advocate to any client is sign your contractor up sooner, engage in pre-construction. Then when the job is ready to go, you don't have the delays, change orders, all these secondary issues that could delay a project down the road. Now, what's happened with COVID is I'm advocating even that even more so now that I, not COVID, but uh, I'm sorry, supply chain issues. I'm advocating that even more so than anything else, just because of the entire, you know, 2020 issues supply chain has really kind of hurt the industry in a lot of ways. Uh, some of our staples, such as, you know, sub-zero appliances, whereas that used to be, you know, hey, get on the phone with sub-zero or your appliance vendor, you'll have it in a month or two. Now it's, you know, because of supply chain, 
it's a year, okay, as, as a waiting time. So that, that to me is insane. So what you want to do is hire your contractor, have them order all your long lead items ahead of time versus, you know, waiting to the last minute. Another thing that's really kind of hurt us as well is, and I, if I could say just a blanket statement, any uh, construction component that's made, assembled in a factory, millwork, appliances, equipment, HVAC equipment, I think it's really assembled in a factory is taking longer now with the supply chain issues than it ever has before. We're going overseas for mill workers in a lot of uh, mill workshops in a lot of cases because the ones that we're used to going to here are have got backlog. So what that's doing now is if you have backlog, your on-site construction is now also getting delayed. That's why, again, I, I advocate that you hire your contractor, do all your procurement way ahead, way, well in advance. This way, once you get started, there's no waiting. Your appliances, yes, it was going to take you a year, but if you ordered it you know, pr proactively six months ago, the wait time, it should get there just in time. We're doing the same thing with HVAC. We're, we have a client now who has a Park Avenue apartment where they're looking to uh, replace all their HVAC equipment. And the first thing I said was, well, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to let you move out of your apartment until all the HVAC equipment is in hand and in storage. Why? Because once it's in hand and in storage, now I feel comfortable to say, okay, move out temporarily. We'll replace all the equipment. And then when, once we're done, here's your schedule. Come back in four months. It'll be already installed. It'll, it'll be ready for you to go. Great. No problem. So those are some of the things that I would definitely advocate. Spend a lot of time on the front end getting everything ready before you go and before you dive into it head, head first and just say, oh, how come we're late? Why is the job delayed? What do you mean the, the mill work is six months behind or whatever the case may be? Right. If you well, really, find yeah, really, really interesting that this is a, a supply chain issue and it's and it's a new issue. It's two years old. And before mm -hmm. this, it was go to your architect first, get the plans and then go to the contractor. <clears throat> uh, so <clears throat> Excuse me. That that change uh, that's a that's a pretty significant change. And how has that impacted the uh, the contractor industry versus the uh, architect industry? I mean, is, is that has it been a big change uh, for for the construction industry, or is it? So, just it, it, it all depends on the level of sophistication of the contractor. So, for let's let's say contractors along the lines of recent ultra high network space. It's kind of our, our, our modus operandi. That's how we've always kind of operated. It's what we'll always advocate. So let's just say the, you know, contractors that are, you know, not as uh, well-versed in that method of operation and who are trying, now have to say, change their way of going about things. It's, it's a learning curve for them naturally. Architects along that same line as well. Some of your higher end architects, your, your Peter Marinos, your Robert Amsterns, architects along that line, very well-versed in this, methodology of doing things. But again, some of the lower tier, I don't want to say lower tier, but you know, some of the architects that aren't as well versed in it that do lower scale work may not be as comfortable in that realm. But again, they, they really should advocate to getting the contractor signed up sooner rather than later. And what happens very often, this is what I always tell, tell architects is there's a development of process in their plans, design development, construction documents. They, they do have set categories and milestones in when their drawings are are ready to be released, I always advocate that they should get their drawings released to a contractor in the design development stage, which is, you know, 30%, 40%. All your details aren't ready. You haven't picked out all your materials. You haven't picked out everything else out yet, but get the contractor on board and see where you go from there. Get your budget lined up, get your schedule lined up, get all your procurement done. And this way it just creates a much better environment once the process gets started. 
And it's interesting because, you know, when we talk to clients about a renovation projects that they're doing, we have a form that and uh, several questions that we want to ask and get information. One of them is, have you hired a contractor yet? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the answer is no, because, you know, they're buying a new home and they're going to do the renovation after that. So they haven't gotten to that stage yet. Uh, but, you know, the, you know, potentially the, the advice there is to say, you know, you really need to get on the contractor, um, you know, question and, and, and look into hiring that as soon as, as, soon as possible. Um, the uh, one thing you said there was that sometimes you have to go overseas for millwork uh, and special uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is millwork the same as specialist labor, specialty labor um, or craftsman, that type of thing? Is that where you're, is that, is that the same? And if so, is that, um, uh, you know, it's been said that there's a shortage of this in the U.S. Uh, and maybe globally. Uh, how are you dealing with that issue today, uh, a shortage of specialty labor? So absolutely. That, that's a great question, Kurt. So the short answer is yes, it is definitely specialty labor, labor force that does that mill work. And it even gets, the, the margin gets even narrower because of, uh Mill work as a as a whole, there's there's mill workers, and then there's the mill workers that can only work in the ultra high net worth space. Which once you get to that level, there's only select mill workers that we would go to. And at the playing field here, here in New York, there's probably top of my head, ten to twenty of them that we kind of feel comfortable with. And each one of them, we have to be very selective on which project because not all of them have got that same tier. Some of them are, you know, I, I want to say everybody's an A plus, but not everybody's an A plus. There's some that's A plus, there's some that's A, there's some that's A minus, and they're all fantastic. But you want to make sure that you get the right mill worker uh, for for the right project. Now, what's happened here is because, as, as I mentioned, you know, there there has been a lot of you know uh, issues in, in terms of supply chain. We've had to go overseas, and uh, I'm not sure if, I'm, if that's where you're going. So that's we we go through the same vetting process. For the overseas mill workers that we do here in New York, and it's not just New York, but we'll go through other states as well. There's a few mill workers we do we, that we work with that are in other parts of the country. They're also severely backlogged, uh, and that that's kind of what our issue has been. We have a mill workshop of our own uh, in Mineola, as I mentioned, and our backlog is two years right now. So, and and which is a great thing when you think about it. But then, by that same token, you're saying, well. You know, the, the, the reason why you have the backlog is because you can't just simply hire more skilled personnel. You've got a factory that you are contained inside of. You can only have 40 people inside the, inside the factory or, or 60 people, whatever, whatever the limitations are. You only have so much equipment that you could use. So you have an output limitation and you can't just say, oh, well, work weekends. That doesn't, that's a short term gain that doesn't really solve anything long term. So yes, we we definitely need to go overseas, and we're you know uh, a lot of them have local area installers, which really helps the cause. But it seems to be, and again, we we vet them hundred percent. We go, we make trips overseas when we need to to see how the how the uh, process is developing, and so far we're making it work. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, because one of the things that's been a, a repeating theme in what we're talking about is delays, uh, mm-hmm. construction delays. And in today's world, post uh, COVID-19 supply chain delays, um, this is a big issue, right? For, for you as a project manager, for your clients with the jobs. Uh, and I remember you, you were telling me a story about a client who, you know, that they had a specific time frame that they wanted to get the, the job done. 
And it was extremely important that that be done. Uh, so can you just tell us a little bit about your role as a project manager and how that can correlates into the timing of a project and how important that timing is for clients and and scheduling and logistics and all of this. Absolutely. And so there's a couple of different things I'm going to touch on here as well. So and then, so uh, on timing, so there, there's four things that I say that every client looks for. And, you know, it's, it's price, quality, schedule, relationship. And schedule is one of my key things as a, as a project manager. And to me, I, I, as I mentioned, I also teach scheduling at, 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 at the university level. Our client base is not you know, only price conscious and price sensitive, but schedule sensitive, because depending on where they are in their career and in their life, I've had more than one instance where schedule was more important than cost. And they were later on in years, they, their, their position was, well, listen, and you know, I, I have the money. It's not an issue about money. You're giving me a fair price. But what I really need to know is I'm 80 years old or whatever their case may be is I, I've got, a, you know, there, there's a realistic uh, factor here, which is I don't want to spend the next two, three years in construction and see delays. Guarantee me that you'll be done in a year to two years. This way I can move in when I need to move in. I still have my whole life ahead of me. So that's kind of the driving factor is schedule very often in our, in our client base. And you know what, what also kind of happens is, is uh, or is a, I'm now going to kind of flip this to the insurance industry where uh, there was a very large claim that I was part of uh, with, with Chubbett about four or five years ago, give or take. And it was a flood for a high net worth client in a very prestigious building. And the, the adjuster came to me, I gave them my, my estimate and I gave them a schedule. It was, I'm just gonna throw some numbers that I kind of vaguely re recall. It was about $8 million of a loss. And I gave them a schedule of, you know, of one year, approximately 12 months from beginning to end. It was a very large claim, a very prestigious building. The finishes were in incredible, just top tier across the board. So I was going back and forth with the adjuster quite a, quite a bit. And he said, Zach, can you do anything to bring the schedule down? And I said, well, listen, you know, that, that's a really interesting point. What would you like me? You know, I've got a couple of ideas I could kick back and forth. I could go to more than one mill worker. I could put in overtime. I could, you know, there's a bunch of ideas. I was, so he says, do me a favor, do your best. Let us know what you can do to bring the schedule down and what the upcharge cost will be. So I said, okay, great. Okay. So I gave them, I said, look, I could bring it down from 12 down to nine. I was able to chew off three months off the schedule, but it's also going to cost you an extra 2 million. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, about an extra uh, million dollars, whatever it is, because I'm paying overtime. I'm paying this, I'm paying that. There's a whole battery of costs. So the adjuster turned around and said, Zach, fantastic. That's what I want you to do. I, I, I kind of scratched my head for a minute. And he says, you don't understand the client that we're dealing with, their living costs outside of, because they, they, they're going to be put up in a hotel for the for the duration of the project at a very you know prestigious hotel, uh, the living costs are, are exceed your, uh, your 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 additional construction costs for the schedule. So oh great okay now that makes sense to me you know so win win <laughs> yeah it's a win win exactly exactly so it really does make sense and schedule really is a factor and you know as a project manager to me you know I there's different programs that I use and you know Microsoft Project is, is my primary one. Every day when I'm running a project, it's the first thing I look at because once you're once you go beyond your anticipated schedule, that's when people start getting annoyed. Well, okay, I get it. Could cost we change this, we change that, but 
why is my project taking longer than it should be? And you're the professional, you should be adhering to, it doesn't have to be exactly on target. Yes, it's very fluid, but we shouldn't be experiencing delays of more than, you know, 10%, whatever the case may be. Right. No, that's that's very interesting. And I had a, a, a claim years ago where the the client was a New York City townhome and it was a significant loss. Uh, and they had to be in a certain area because it was walkable to the schools for their children. Mm-hmm. And the the, uh, the insurance company ended up having to pay about $40,000 a month rent for that uh, alternative living. So, I mean, I think the point you're making about, you know, scheduling and your job as a project manager and scheduling, how important that is and, and, and the different dynamics that it plays in the grand scheme. You know, because the insurance company says, well, you know what, that's better than us paying $40,000 a month or whatever yeah. it is, you know, for, to put this family up for that time period. So very interesting. Um, and so, you know, in today's world, uh, and, and obviously the, the panel you were on at the PRMA, we were talking about the, the costs uh, of construction going up. And I, I, I think I remember uh, some of the, the stats that you said during that uh, conversation uh, it was either you or another panel member, but they were saying the cost per square foot in New York has gone from like $1,000 a square foot. And it, of course, it depends on the property, but you're seeing upwards of $2,000 a square foot uh, for some of these properties. Um, how has the estimating changed since COVID, in your opinion? So it's a great question, Kurt. So, you know, years ago, $1,000 a square foot was buying you ultra ultra quality, ultra finishes across the board. Now, you know, in the high net worth space, $1,000 a square foot is good, not great. It, uh, for, for example, just we're, we're looking at a couple of townhouses now. And to me, that's like the low end. We, we Very often we give the range a range budget. And the range budget says, well, we, we understand that your drawings are not that far along, but here's where we think you're trending. It's between X and Y. And we could tell the client base that, it's between, you know, in the past, we'd say 800 to 1200 square foot, whatever the case may be. And their middle ground would be a thousand. Now on townhouses, just as a, for example, where there's a structural component in the renovation, you're looking at minimum 1500 to 2000, minimum, just, that's just out of the gate. And, you know, assuming which architects and which type of finishes you're looking for, that's kind of what's happened right now with the way that inflation's kind of hit, you know, the universe that the last year or so, construction costs have skyrocketed. Uh, the cost of steel, cost of concrete, it's all really catapulted across the board. And that's really affected everything. We, we, we as a company also are, have looked at our employees and said, okay, we understand cost of living has gone up. And as you mentioned before, you've got specialty employees that you don't want to lose, you know, it, because of, hey, well, my, I haven't gotten a raise in two years and cost of living has gone up. So now we've got to do what we have to do to make sure that we don't, there's a retention issue too. So getting back to your point with contractor selection and cost per square foot, they've absolutely gone up. Depending on what type of work you're looking for and depending on what type of uh, contractor and architect you hire, that's really kind of the driving factor. But you know, your, your, your apartment renovation, Park Avenue, Fifth Avenue, whatever the case may be, you're looking at a thousand square foot coming out of the gate, no question, and upwards. Uh, we've, we've done projects now three to $4,000 a square foot also, but those are the ones that have got a real serious, strong construction component to them. What's also kind of hit us too is getting a uh, contractor. And this has settled down a bit, but I'll just tell you, tell you a quick story. We were doing a, we we're about to start a, uh, a home up in uh, Woodstock, New York, which is, you know, two, three hours up upstate. And it's kind of a new territory for us. 
And one of the things I did was I want to vet my structural steel contractor because it's somebody that we haven't worked with before. And his structural steel uh, cost was about a million dollars, give or take, just 1.2, whatever the case may be. I went to a shop. He had a nice shop in New Paltz. was great. Plenty of stock, had all the equipment that I was looking for. Great guy. And as I'm walking out, I said, you know, and this is, I say, this was like towards the end of summer, early fall. As I'm walking out the door, I asked him, well, let me just ask you, well, how long is your estimate good for? And I, I, the, the, I was expecting the comment of, oh, 30 days, 60 days. It was kind of like an off the cuff comment that I asked him. And he turned around to me and said, one week. And I, my jaw dropped to the ground. <laughs> I said, one week? What are you talking about, one week? I was surprised. He goes, no, Zach, he goes, look, I'm not trying to be difficult with you. I want to do the job, want to work with you. But with the volatility of steel right now, I really can't even guarantee my prices for that long because it could skyrocket on me. He goes, look at what I'm going through. And he pulled out some data charts for me to take a look at. And I understood where he was coming from. So those costs are really, you know, as for the, you know, as we talked about at that conference, costs have really did skyrocket, you know, in 2022. I still think they're going to go up because of you know inflation, uh, uh, consumer price index, and some of the reports I'm hearing. But you know, at the very least, what I think has happened is, as a contractor, we're getting used to it and we're adapting to that inflation right now. Uh, hopefully, it starts coming down. And I did notice that my cost of the pump has gone down significantly in the last couple of weeks and months. But right. you know, that was my next question: is yeah. do you think it's coming down ever? So, uh, I'd say mixed bag. And I wish I, I, I still think 2023 is not going to be a good year in terms of inflation. I still think we're going to, we're going to go up. Yeah. I, I just, that's, I just think we're trending in that way. And I think we're still catching up to the cost right now, unfortunately, you know, uh, I think until we get some more, you know, until inflation rates start to decrease, you know, I'm sorry, until we start to see some overall decrease, you know, in terms of uh, consumer price index, uh, interest rates have got to come down right now. Interest rates are I, I don't remember last week we had another increase, but it was not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago, I could have sworn we had another increase. And so they start decreasing interest rates and start adjusting a few things here and there to bring inflation. You know, I've, I, I've heard the word soft landing with inflation, but I think that 2023 is still going to be a little bit of a rough road, hope, which would hopefully get better towards the second half of it. Yeah. And now just a quick question. Are these figures that you're talking about from the perspective of new construction or new renovation, or is it post-loss? So that would be for new renovation. You know, the 1,000, 1,500, that would be for a new renovation. Post-loss is a kind of a different mixed bag animal. You know, it all depends on how severe was it. Now, if it's, let's, let's just take the worst case scenario is always fire. If it's a fire on at for a home in you know, the Hampton sisters, for example, then we're looking at the same thing. You're looking at a thousand uh, on up because, you know, what can you save on a fire project in the Hamptons with the exception of the structural foundation? And even in that case, that's not always salvageable, but let's just say, for example, it is, you're looking at a thousand upwards it, just for that home. I'd say closer to 1500, if not higher than that for Hamptons house, New York city, I, most of the losses that I get in New York City are water damage claims, frozen pipes, things along that line. So there's a different kind of uh, ball game that you're looking at well under 500 because it's more cosmetic. And you know, once the place gets aired out, change the wood floor, paint, change some millwork here and there, whatever the case may be, there's a lot less. But those numbers I was thinking, about, just to answer your question, absolutely, that's more along the lines of new construction. Yeah, no, it's interesting because, you know, I'm working on a, a case right now for a client built, just built a brand new home in the Hamptons. 
uh, $5 million, 5,984 square foot uh, is the purchase price. And we're working on the replacement cost. And in the back of my mind, I'm kind of thinking it's it might be more than $5 million the replacement cost, you know, by the time we insure it in March. So, uh, so something to think about just the dynamics of the moving numbers and, and great example with the steel uh, mill where uh, the steel mill where they're saying uh, it's good for a week, you know, not 30 days. Uh, well, this, this has been an amazing conversation, so educational and so interesting. And, and there's, and it's clear to me that there are so many um, so much more to learn about the construction industry uh, that can help us as advisors better understand, you know, what's going on when you're building a home, when you're renovating a townhome, uh, that can really help uh, us advise our clients and, and take them through that process. So as we finish up here, I, I just, you know, the, the last question I'd say is, you know, is there any final um, words of wisdom or thoughts that you'd like to share with uh, the private risk management or, you know, private client uh, advisor community uh, from a construction and estimating uh, point of view. So maybe just circling back on the one thing with that we we kind of touched on a couple of times was building the smarter home and getting the insurance industry involved with the construction industry in some capacity. Where what is it that the insurance when and it's it's got to be monetarily feasible also. What would affect a, a, a client's premium if they do it now and they're if they put certain mitigating factors into their home? What would affect their premium? Just as for example, I just I say water bugs, which is a leak detection system coming right out of the gate. What's not shown in the building department rules and regulations and permits and everything else? What in the what in the home could be done to mitigate and and or bring down the premium? That's going to help the insurance. Yeah, that will help the insurance industry. That would be one thing I would want to take away from this conversation and say there's got to be a laundry list of ideas that the insurance industry could put forward and say, hey, architects. If you put these things down, put them in front of very put them in front of your client. It's going to help them in the long run. It's not going to affect your design. Why not have this laundry list in front of a client? Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, and especially putting it in front of the architects is a great idea. You know, because they're the ones at the beginning. You know, and so you say put the water bugs in in place in the design phase, or even you know some of these devices have artificial intelligence that's built in so that they understand the water usage in pipes. You know, twenty four seven, three sixty five. Uh, and so, you know, this seems like it'd be just um, uh, a silver bullet, like great idea, get it done. Uh, but uh, it's it takes time to, to incorporate those things and to, to make those connections. Uh, but great, great thoughts. I appreciate that. Well, uh, thank you again, Zach. This this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time today and sharing your knowledge and experience with the uh, private client risk and resilience audience. Um, I hope we have uh, the chance to do it again soon and probably hopefully see you at the, uh, the next PRMA summit. Uh, and thanks again to everyone who listened into this episode today. I hope you got a lot out of it as I did. And I look forward to inviting you back to our next episode uh, coming up, coming soon. Uh, thanks again, everybody. Have a great day.